Christ be lifted up. May we see him. It's in the the name of our Savior we ask these things. Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and join me in Psalm 46 this morning. Psalm 46. As I mentioned at the outset, uh, we're celebrating Independence Day weekend, but it's good for us to be reminded this morning that that our hope is in the Lord. We are, we are thankful for our country. We praise God for our country. But, beloved, our hope is in Jesus Christ and is in the gospel. It is in God's word. It is in God's promises. And I want to just take this weekend to just hit pause for, on our, our uh, study through Luke's gospel. We'll re- resume that next week and just park in Psalm 46. I think it will be a comfort and a help and an encouragement to you this morning. So Psalm 46 We'll just read through the psalm here together, then we'll, we'll walk through here and, and see what God has for us. So follow along as I read Psalm 46. To the chief musicians for the sons of Korah, a song upon Alamoth. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He, that is God, uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he has made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Like all people in in history, we're we're living in uncertain times. I think we can sometimes feel as if the times in which we are living and the times to which God has called us are are unusually difficult. Uh, Be reminded of what Job says. He says, man is appointed to trouble as the sparks fly upward. But it's in those times of trouble and those times of uncertainty and those times where we don't know what the future holds. I know many of us are deeply concerned for our country. We look back to 1776, but we're like, man, what's the, what, what does the future hold? And, and there's questions and there's uncertainty. Or you're walking through right now in your own life a time of deep personal difficulty. I know that's true for many of you who are here this morning. Deep personal difficulty. Where, where do we turn? Where do we find hope? As a church family, and when we walk through seasons of suffering with one another and days of despair and weeks of weakness, where do we turn? Where do we look to for hope? Whence do we flee for safety? Listen, how we answer those questions, that tells me functionally who your God is. Because we can say on one hand, hey, I believe in God, Jehovah God, that's my Savior. But when the going gets tough... Yeah, we run to social media, we run to our friends, or we run to our counselors, or we run to our psychologists, or we run to, to medication. It tells me that, that, that where I go to for refuge, where I go to for hope, functionally, that's, that's my God. That's the one on whom I rely and I depend. 
Psalm 46 is a psalm of confidence. It's a psalm declaring for the people of God that we are confident in our God. We are trusting in our Savior. It declares the great confidence of God's people in the face of danger. You'll notice that uh, verse 6 mentions that the the heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. There's some setting where Jerusalem, it mentions the city of God, is being threatened by some attacking army. If you read the Old Testament, you find out that happened a lot. Uh, The the way that this is worded almost sounds like it would fit the setting when Sennacherib, remember Sennacherib in the days of Hezekiah, he's the Assyrian king, he comes with this big old army and he's like, guys, you need to surrender, your God is useless, you need to surrender to me, don't listen to Hezekiah. And he besieges the city of Jerusalem, and then God comes and intervenes, and what happens? 185,000 of the Assyrian troops are dead when they wake up in the morning. God comes through and delivers his people. We're not told who wrote this psalm. This seems to fit that setting. It seems to tie into some language that we see earlier in Isaiah that compares the the raging waters of the invasion with the still waters of God's provision. We get that that contrast between the the, the raging seas of verse 3 and the meandering river of verse 4. That ties into Isaiah 8, 6 to 8. Possibly. So let's just say, for example, we're talking about that setting. We're talking about God intervening in a time of dire need to protect his people. Now, whether that's the setting or not, the point is clear. God is enough. That's what this psalm is all about. It is saying to your troubled heart and my troubled heart this morning, God is saying to you, I am enough. I am sufficient to walk through this trouble with you. So no matter the trouble, no matter the danger, no matter the threat, no matter the uncertainty, God is enough. This is a psalm declaring the utter adequacy of our God. So in that time of difficulty, the the psalmist turns to Yahweh. Now, this psalm is broken up very neatly into three stanzas. You notice at the end of verse 3, we get that little word, Selah. It's calling for pausing and meditation. That wraps up the first stanza. Then the second stanza ends in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Again, we get that word, Selah. And then again in verse 11, that stanza gets repeated. Kind of like we just sang, he will hold me fast. That chorus gets repeated at the end of every verse. That's what verses 7 and 11 are doing. I'm not going to do any rocket science or brain surgery or any you know, Hebrew exegesis this morning. I just want to walk through these three stanzas and point you to the truth that they convey, truth about our God that is designed to give you and me confidence and hope in the middle of a troubled world. All right, so let's notice first off in the, in the first stanza, God promises to us, and guarantees to us divine protection, divine protection. It's, it's that very first word of the psalm, verse 46. God is our refuge and strength. By the way, there's that title that's regarded as part of the text in Hebrew. It's a song upon Alamoth, which is maybe some high-pitched instrument, or maybe for the sopranos. It's kind of a higher, uh, higher register, if, how this would have been sung in the, in the songbook of Israel. God is our refuge and strength. We get the announcement here of God's protection, of this divine protection. The first words in Hebrew are are God to us. God to us is a refuge. I love how that's fronted. Here's God and here's us and God saying, I'm guaranteeing myself to you to be your protector, to be your strength, to be the one who is present in trouble. God's protection is powerful and strong, like a, a refuge. Think of a citadel. Think of a, of a castle with the walls and the moat and the gates of iron that is secure and protected against the attack of the enemy. 
Thomas is probably thinking about Israel, perched there near the Kidron Valley. It's almost impregnable defenses. He's saying, our defense, our hope is not really the wall of Jerusalem. It's the God of Jerusalem. He's the protector of his people. Our refuge and strength. That is to say that he is a very, very strong. He is a strong refuge, a strong protector for his people. Zion's strength, Zion's protection was God. And he's the one to whom we must flee for our safety. You know, a refuge is only good if you go inside it. If you're like, yeah, I've got this castle over here, but I think I'm just going to stand out here with the enemy alone. You need to draw near to the refuge, draw near to your God who promises to be the strength and the protector to say, I will hold you fast. Many will look to refuges of rock and of iron, physical fortresses. Many look to refuges of gold and silver, finding their security in the bank account, the, 501, uh, the, 5, uh, the, the 401k. They will look to their refuges of flesh and blood as they look to human relationships to protect them. Others will place their hope in, the, in politics and in elections and in government. Others will run to therapists and to pills and to doctors But God says, I'm the one who stands as the protector of my people. Not to say that he doesn't work through those other means, but to say that ultimately his people hope in him. God's people are more secure than a man who is ringed by protecting armies and walls and moats. You are more secure in Christ than a person who is even in the strongest fortress. He's our refuge. He's our strength. God is our protector. Now, it goes on to say he's a very present help in trouble. He's a help. He's one who comes to our aid. He's one who comes to to deliver and to be with us in trouble. And and the trouble is in the plural, in troubles. Have you ever noticed that trouble never just shows up alone? Trouble always shows up with with its cousins and with its friends and with its pals to come along. It, It always comes in a gang. We sing, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll. That is so often the case in the the lives of the people of God. Troubles don't just come alone. It's not just one wave, but it's wave after wave after wave. And you're wondering, when's it going to stop? And God says, I'm with you in the surf as the waves come crashing over, and I'm going to hold your hand, and I'm not going to let you get swept out to sea, and I'm not going to let you drown. I'm going to hold on to you, a very present help. The sense of this is, A help, a very great one, okay? A help that is greater than the trouble, a help that is more powerful than the enemy, a help that is more real than even the trouble itself. He is more present than your closest family members. He is more sufficient than the strongest army. He is more helpful than even the wisest counselor. When troubles arise, beloved, God's presence arrives. His help is not fair weather help but it is help that is always there. Just worth pointing out to remind you if, you, if you say, hey, I became a Christian because I thought this would make my life better. Jesus tells us that to get to glory, glory, we must walk the path of suffering. We are not guaranteed a life of ease. Nowhere does the Bible say being a Christian will make your life easier. In fact, we find out that through much tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of God. This notion of health and wealth and prosperity It just falls flat as dashed on the rocks of reality and, more importantly, on the rocks of what the Scripture tells us. God is greatly found for those in trouble. So for those who are shattered, 
For those who are heartbroken, for those who are bereaved, for those who are betrayed, for those who are abandoned, for those who are rejected, for those who are attacked, for those who are falsely accused, the Father says, I'm present, I'm sufficient, I'm enough. When you go to the doctor and they come back and they're like, there's nothing more that we can do here. We've exhausted treatment options. God's like, I'm present there with you. Right? When, when, the, when the employer comes along, it's like, sorry, we've had to lay people off. When you're looking at the bank account and you're like, I don't, know, I don't know how we're going to make it this month. God's like, that's when I show up. That's when my, my strength is made apparent. So God, we see his divine protection. Verses 2 and 3 now show how this is applied. Because verse 1 is a wonderful statement of theology. God's a refuge and strength. He's all-powerful. He's present for his people. He's entered into covenant with us. You're like, great, I get that theology. Now what do I do with that? Notice that big word in verse 2, therefore. Therefore links the theology of God's word with the problem of your daily life. Therefore will not we fear. So what what should this do in my life? The reality of verse 1 should make me step back and say, therefore will not we fear. I won't be overwhelmed and flattened by fear. There is a direct link between your view of God and your response to trouble. If you have a high view of God, this God is sovereign and powerful and great and mighty, then that will give you the ability to stand when the troubles come to say, I won't fear. Now, of course, we're going to feel some natural fear. It's a a God-given impulse to to, to protect us, right? If we never feared, we would would do crazy stuff. Like kids don't have fear. And you're like, don't go off that jump on your bike. And you kind of learn fear like that's not a good idea. I'm talking about crippling fear that, 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 that forgets God and that stops believing in him. If we believe that God is our sovereign protector, our almighty refuge, our perfect defender, then we can face life's chaos and danger without fear. Now, what we get described in verses 2 and 3 is the earth moving, the mountains tottering, getting thrown into the midst of a boiling, raging sea, total, complete chaos. We might say today that the rug is pulled out from under you. The floor has just dropped out from underneath. We're talking about all hell breaking loose in a sense. That's what's being described. You, can't, you, know, you think about this, mountains. Um, I grew up in Arizona. There's mountains all around. And guess what? Every day you get up and you look at them, they're exactly the same. They're always there. You don't come up and be like, wow, where'd that mountain go? Like, I went to bed and boom, now we're like living in the Great Plains. Like, that doesn't happen, Right? For mountains to be carried into the midst of the sea is to say the thing that I thought was dependable and was certain and unchanging, the ground beneath my feet, the terra firma, is all of a sudden shaking. It's a, the, the image here is an earthquake. It's where, you know, common Israel's right on the Great Rift Valley. Um, when I went to Israel a few years ago, it, one of the tours we did was through Hezekiah's Tunnel, which is pretty incredible. It's this tunnel cut 1,700 feet through the rock to bring water into the city. And this is from 700 B.C., and as you're going through this narrow tunnel with water up to your waist, all I'm thinking is like, I remember those other stops, all those plaques talking about like this city was flattened by an earthquake and this city. I'm like, well, what happens if we're down here? And This would have been Im- imagery that, that the readers of the psalm, the singers of the psalm would have understood. They're like, earthquakes, we get it. That's when you, you don't know what you, what, what's stable. This is to say that even when the worst chaos comes, when the worst trials assault, when the, the, when the things that you thought were stable are thrown into the sea, so to speak, even then, God is enough. It's kind of like what Job says, that which I have most feared has come upon me. When a baby is stillborn, when a child dies, 
when a spouse leaves, when disease enters, when a relationship ends, when a nation rises or falls. I think that's what's being described here based on verse 6. When, there, when Israel's in the midst of, here's the Assyrians going down, now here's the Egyptians and then the Babylonians and just geopolitical turmoil, and they're caught smashed in the middle. Even then, we will not fear. You see, come what may, the child of God can rest in hope. Even when the waves swallow the very mountains, faith reposes in its fortress. The psalmist is saying the Himalayas can be hurled into the Mariana Trench. The Rockies could be submerged in the Pacific, but faith cannot be drowned so long as it stands on the Rock of Ages. He will hold me fast. We see God's divine protection. We now move into the second stanza in verse 4, and the imagery just suddenly changes. It's like the, the, hymn, the, the, the hymn is being sung, and it's dissonant, and it's in a minor key, and it's, it's difficult. And now there's a resolution that the key changes. We go to a major key. The dissonance turns to, to harmony. There is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God, notice this phrase, is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Again, look at verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. Now what is being emphasized is not merely God's protection, but God's presence. This God who is our protector, the fortress to whom we run, dwells in the midst of his people and promises to be with us. Think about the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew begins with Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And it ends with, and lo, I am with you what always, even to the end of the age. And we go along through Scripture to 1 Corinthians, or let's go back, even to the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the people of God. The people of God become the temple of God. And so Paul can say in 1 Corinthians, you are the temple of the living God. You're the dwelling place of God, the Spirit of God dwelling within you. you God is in the midst of you. And then we come along to the book of Revelation, and we get this incredible statement. The tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them and will be their God and will wipe away every tear from their eye. It's the storyline of the Bible, God dwelling with his people. You can trace this storyline from the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve walking with God, enjoying fellowship with him. By the way, one of the things you'll note in Eden, what is there? There, there are rivers sort of symbolizing divine blessing. And then we come along to the, the tabernacle of the temple where God reveals himself on the Ark of the Covenant with his people. Ezekiel portrays a day when one day this, this new temple will be built and there will be what? A river coming from the holy place. We get to Revelation and what do we see again? A river with the water of life flowing down beside the tree of life. We get the statement in verse 4, there is a river that makes glad the city of God. Now here's the thing, Jerusalem doesn't have a river. So you think, well, that's just talking about the city of Jerusalem. He's talking about something else. There's no rivers in Jerusalem. That's one of the vulnerabilities of the city. That's why Hezekiah, knowing that Sennacherib was going to come, chiseled that 1,777-foot tunnel through the rock to bring the water from Gihon Springs to the Pool of Siloam. But he's saying God's presence with his people is like a life-sustaining river. The last thing you want under in a siege when you're in a desert climate is to run out of water. And he's like, God is the one who is going to sustain us through the siege. What does God's presence do for his people? Well, first off, it does sustain. God's presence, God's presence sustains. It sustains our life like water for a besieged city. But it sustains our joy. Notice this phrase, there is a river. 
the streams whereof make glad the city of God. Do you see the contrast, by the way? We've had the boiling seas with mountains throwing, being thrown into them. Now we get a beautiful meandering river. Just the, the picturesque, life-giving water, joy-giving water, picturing the presence of God that sustains our joys. God's presence is not like the chaos of the raging oceans. Rather, God's presence is constant. It is peaceful. It is unchanging. It's not like the intermittent desert wadi, right? Uh, out west where I grew up, they have things called washes, and they're dry riverbeds. There's never any water until you get a big thunderstorm, and then a wall of water will come through, and then it'll be dry again. God's presence is not like that. Here today, gone tomorrow, grace, but now it's taken away. No, it is constant, more like the Mississippi River, constant, steady supply of water, of grace. Remind you that if you're standing on a riverbank, and the water comes by. You know, you don't get all the water right there in front of you. You you can see it coming down, and here it is, and then it goes past you. God's grace is the same way. He doesn't say, hey, live on the grace that's already down the river. He says, live on the grace that I'm going to give you right now. And guess what? You can look up the river, and you can see that there's still more water coming down. We live in hope of the promises of God. The promise that grace is coming our way like, like water down a river, like like a conveyor belt, just bringing God's promises for the future into our lives for today. His mercies are new, what, every, every morning, every morning. And so God's saying, here's my grace coming to you one day at a time. The alarm clock's going to go off, put your feet on the floor, and you're going to trust my grace. And you're going to do the same thing again tomorrow and the same thing the next day. That's how all of us are meant to live our lives. Give us this day, what, our, our daily bread. Yet here's what we want to do. We want to take, God, I, want to, I need grace, and I need all the troubles for the next 50 years. And God's like, no, no, no. One day at a time, trust me, right now, in the moment, take the grace that I give you. God's presence sustains the city of God. So we get that statement in verse 4, the city of God, the, the, the reference to Jerusalem. And notice the, 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 the phrase at the end of the verse, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Jerusalem was where the temple was. Jerusalem was where the the Ark of the Covenant was. Jerusalem was where God chose to display his presence. That's the emphasis here. Look at the presence of God. But verse 5 says, God is in the midst of her. God's dwelling in Jerusalem. That's where his presence is revealed. Even though the heavens of the heavens cannot contain him, Solomon reminds us. But that's where God's chosen to reveal himself. He says, she shall not be moved. Okay, that word moved is the same word that's used in verse 2 to say that though the earth be removed, it's the same word that's used down in verse 6, the kingdoms were moved. So he says, okay, the mountains can be moved, the geopolitical order can be moved, but God's people can't. They're not going to be shaken, they're not going to lose their confidence. God's presence is in the middle of grubby Jerusalem, turning it into the very footstool of heaven. It's not going to totter. Sometimes we will feel like our faith will fail. Um, man, I, I don't know if I can, I can do this. We just saying that hymn, when I feel my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. What a promise. So the mountains are the symbols of stability. They might slide into the seas, but God's city, God's people, he will not let us slip. We are secure in his hands. The entire world could collapse. Nations will come to naught. One day the United States will be just a footnote in the annals of the world, but the kingdom of God, the city of God, will still stand forever and ever. So chaos can surround us, but God's presence is the given. 
Everything else can change, but there's, there's one thing that you know will not change if you are a child of God, is that God is with you. That's the given. And nothing confounds him, nothing overwhelms him. So God's presence, as we see here, God's presence sustains us. God's presence strengthens us. But verse 5 goes on to tell us that God's presence saves us. It says, God will help her. Okay, that word help links us back to verse 1. There are these links within the psalm. He's a very present help. And then we get the statement, by the way, God will help. And then we get that phrase, and that right early, literally at the turning of the morning. God will help at the turning of the morning. He's going to come and save promptly. God's deliverance comes after the dark night of danger. Think back over Israel's history. It was in the morning that God came and sent the waters back over the hosts of Pharaoh. It was in the morning that Israel, the people of Jerusalem, woke up and they looked out and they realized the entire army of Sennacherib is now dead. God's deliverance coming in the morning of his grace and of his kindness. So his saving, it happens promptly. Verse 6, the heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. Listen, if you're a little Judah at the time of, I'm not talking about your kid, Nate, but if you're the kingdom of Judah in 700 B.C., you're this tiny sliver of land on the coast of the Mediterranean. Assyria, they're the, the big, powerful, big power block of the, of the world. It would be like the comparison between, like, Haiti and the United States, right? You're facing this enormous uh, just enemy that you cannot in of yourselves defy. And the nations defy God. They conspire against him. They say, let us cast his bonds asunder, Psalm 2. They rage against God. They move. They make their conspiracies, their plans. And then notice how God, what God does in verse 6. He speaks, and that's it. With just a word of his mouth. He can silence all the raging of all the nations. He's in control. The earth melted. The earth dissolves. The same earth, the same ground that shakes in verse 2 melts in verse 6. And all the conspiracies of evil, even when they're brought together, cannot thwart the divine plan. Psalm 2 describes this specifically in reference. It's a messianic psalm saying the, the nations come together and say, let's break God's bands asunder. And what, you know what that psalm says? He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh. God's just like, what are you guys doing? I'm in control. I'm in control. Verse 7 goes on to say, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Verse 6 could make it sound like the God from a very distant way up in heaven just kind of waves a magic wand and be like, there my people are saved. Now I can go back to whatever it was I was doing. No, God is not aloof. When he, when he delivers his people, when he saves us from sin, when he delivers us through heartache and difficulty, he does so personally. Do you, do you see, how, see how personal verse 7 is? The Lord of hosts, that is to say Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of armies, the God who is in control of all the hosts of heaven over all the powers of the earth, the military title for God the warrior. You might think, well, he's really busy. He's a general. He's back in headquarters. Is with us. So this is what's interesting to me, is verse 7 feels backwards. It would make more sense to my mind to say, the Lord of hosts is our refuge, right? Military God, military title, doing military stuff. The, the God of armies, yeah, he's the protector, he's the defender. You know, the com commander-in-chief, he's the protector. And then to get the word title, the God of Jacob, that's the very personal name. The God who's entered into covenant, you would say, well, that makes sense for him to be with us. But what does the psalmist do? 
he flips that. Did you notice that where it's not the personal name is with us and then the powerful name is the refuge? Why does he do that? Is to say God is completely and totally sufficient and all of these, these, these things all the time for every need of all of his people. So when the, the one who is with you is not just a well-meaning God who's like, man, let me put my arm around you, but I can't do anything. No, the one who is with you is the commander-in-chief of all the armies of heaven. And the one who is your refuge and the one who is your protector is the God of Jacob. Now, why, why Jacob? For one, on one level, Jacob is just another name for the nation of Israel. But he could have said Israel, prince with God. Why Jacob? Because this is a reminder that this covenant is based on God's grace. How did God become the God of Jacob? Let me tell you, it wasn't because Jacob was a real upstanding, solid guy. Uh, Jacob, he's a cheat. He's a liar. Right? He, he cheats his brother out of the birthright, out of the blessing. It's pure grace. It's pure mercy that God enters into a covenant with Jacob and says, hey, through you, I'm going to bless the world. You said the God of Abraham, you're like, well, Abraham's a great man of faith, but Jacob, Jacob doesn't bring anything to the table, and God's like, the God of Jacob. This covenant, this relationship, this promise that I make to my people is irrespective of their deserving of it. It's based on grace. And we can speak from the perspective of the New Testament to say, God's presence with us is sealed to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is our God not because we sort of pushed our way in, no, but because God came and he sought us and he saved us and he forgave us and he adopted us and he made us his children and his people and he has sworn by himself because he could swear by none greater that he will forever be with us will ever be for us. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all freely, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? If God has saved us and made us his children on those terms, there's no power of hell, there's no scheme of men that could pluck us from his hand. He saves us personally. And he is all sufficient. The God of armies is also the God of Jacob. The refuge, the high refuge is the idea, the, the refuge you would flee to up in the hills, the citadel, that God is also present with you. So this verse brings together both themes that we have seen, that God is the protector, but he's also present and he is near. What comfort for troubled hearts, what hope for troubled hearts, what hope for a chaotic world to know that we have the promise of divine protection and the promise of divine presence. But we now come into this final stanza, and we see here the promise of divine peace. Here's what's so stunning about this psalm. Verses 2 and 3 describe, just in the most powerful language, complete and utter chaos. Complete and utter turmoil. It's not that God's like, ah, everything's great, just pretend everything's fine, it's just all in your head. No, there's real chaos, there are real threats, there are real dangers, and yet, even in the midst of that, even in the face of that, God declares, beginning in verse 8, peace. And we can think of peace in a couple of different terms. If you're a military background, by the way, if you served in our military, thank you. Thank you for being someone willing to put on the uniform to protect the freedoms that we celebrate this weekend. From a military standpoint, if we talk about peace, it's when the shooting stops, right? That's, okay, peace. The shooting stops, the war comes to an end. That's what we get described in verses 8 and 9. 
There's that, that outward sense of peace. Come, behold the works of the Lord. So now it's like the, the choir that is singing up here in the temple courts, because this would have been a song for the sons of Korah. They now speak to the audience saying, metaphorically, let's go look at, let's get a sort of a catalog. Let's picture what God has done in redemptive history. Come and look, come and see the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. You're like, well, that doesn't sound very comforting. Just desolations and destruction and wasting and ruin. Okay, this God of armies has, is going to come through and he is going to destroy the enemy. Notice what it says. He's going to bring in peace. How? He makes wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow. He cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. God is going to one day bring in a global, universal, eternal peace into this world. That's not going to come in through the United Nations. It's not going to come in through the World Economic Forum. It's going to come through Jesus Christ returning and obliterating all the enemies of God. He is going to burn them up by the light of his countenance, according to 2 Thessalonians. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, the elements will melt with a fervent heat. He is going to purify this world when he returns. Revelation describes him coming out of heaven on a white horse, leading the armies of heaven to that final climactic battle, after which he'll bring in a kingdom of, of lasting and eternal peace. He's going to win. That's what these, these verses say. In the end, God wins. I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in that. There, there is so much injustice in our world. So many crimes that happened just yesterday in Mobile that will never be solved. Many criminals who will get away with the crimes they have committed. And we can get angry. You know, we, we think about the, 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 the fight going on in our nation about you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned, and we praise God for that. But we think about all of the abortions that have been committed in our, in our land and all the abortion doctors who will never face justice. I'll tell you, if I were not a Christian, I think I would go insane with anger. I, I would be wanting to be like, grab, we're, we're going to go deal with this ourselves, this evil, we're going to stop it, oh, let's do it now, and we need to sort of have a realized eschatology and deal with this all now. Or we can step back and say, God says, I will repay, vengeance is mine. That doesn't mean we sit on our hands, there's, there's avenues that we can pursue to see that justice is brought about, and Romans 13 follows Romans 12, say that the, the government's given that job. But when there is injustice, beloved, we can go blind with rage. We can wither up in bitterness. But knowing that in the end God wins, knowing in the end that God judges, knowing that in the end the wrongs will be made right, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet, that can allow you to put your head on the pillow tonight and sing praise to God. Right? We don't have to be swallowed up with this anger. I, I wonder how much of the anger and rage in our country comes from the fact that across the political spectrum, both people, both sides believe we've got to bring sort of the kingdom in now, whatever that version is of social justice or whatever it might be. We've got to do that now, and we've got to make it happen now, and if it doesn't manage just anger and let's riot and protest and smash and burn. Like, no, God's going to bring the kingdom in. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done, which means God does it and not us. We don't advance the kingdom through the sword. We don't advance it through anger. We don't advance it through our own selfish efforts. We trust God to one day do that. He's going to one day shatter all the arsenals of all the, all the nations. Yeah, the nuclear arsenal of Russia 
no problem for God. All of the weaponry in the world, he's going to one day crush it and destroy it, verse 9. That's hope-giving. So there's going to be divine peace that comes in the end when God wins. You say, okay, right now, that's yet future. That's not yet come. Well, understand this. We get this phrase in verse 8. Come behold the works of the Lord. God is active. God is not in heaven, distant, passively waiting. He is active in this world. He is not aloof. He is not distant. We can look through redemptive history to see the harbingers of his final victory. We can look at the Old Testament and see, hey, the God delivered Israel through the, the Red Sea. Here's the God who delivered Jerusalem from Sennacherib's threats. And we can see the ultimate victory won at the cross. The same God who annihilated the armies of Assyria before Jerusalem's gates sent his son to conquer Satan's legions and kill death itself. The greatest victory of all time was won at the cross in which all sin, all death, all guilt, all shame was defeated. And that victory is ours, beloved, through Christ. Yes, he will bring about a day of peace over this earth. A day of peace that will be preceded by a night of judgment. One day he will desolate the desolators. He will destroy the destroyers. He will plunder the plunderers. And he will invade the invaders. All the forces of Satan and hell will be hurled back. That will happen at the coming of Jesus. But verse 10 says, okay, what about right now? Right now. How do we respond? We get an imperative. Okay, we've only got a couple of imperatives in the psalm. Come behold. Okay, look at the, look at the works of God, verse 8. See his victories that he has won and that he will win. We can look at the victories that are yet to come through the lens of Scripture. But right now, be still. Verses 8 and 9 describe the cessation of war, the shooting stops when God wins. Verse 10 describes that peace in the sense that we often use, like, hey, do you feel peace? The subjective sense of peace, the internal kind of peace. Be still and know that I am God. People of Jerusalem... You see the armies surrounding, just be still and know that I'm God, I've got this. To the nations that are raging, nations be still and know that I am God, I rule the earth. That word be still, it's not just, okay, just freeze, everybody freeze, what you're doing right now. The idea is to sink or to relax. It's like when you come home at the end of the day and there's the lazy boy chair and you've been outside and you just, and you let out that breath. It's the idea of releasing, of letting go. The command is directed to us, the people of God, saying, trust. It is a rebuke to the raging world, and it is a comfort to a restless church. It is God saying, I'm in control. How much of our anxiety, think about your anxieties, think about your fears, how many of those come from the fact that you're trying to control things that you have absolutely no control over? How many of those come from thinking about things that you can't do anything about? Be still and know that I am God. This idea, I mentioned that there are parallels with the book of Isaiah. I mean, let me just draw your attention to a couple of these. Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 4, God says, and this is before the invasion of Sennacherib, but God says to King Ahaz, take heed and be quiet. Fear not. Neither be faint-hearted for the two tales of these Smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin, king of Syria, for the son of Remaliah. There's this alliance. He says, be quiet 
and don't fear. Let your heart be still. Let your heart rest. Don't let fear take over. We go along later on into Isaiah chapter 30, and we get essentially the same message in Isaiah 30 and verse 15. For thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and what? Rest shall ye be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength. And ye would not. Calling God's people, calling to rest, to wait, to rely on him. We have the example in Exodus 14 where God says, where Moses says, stand still and what? See the salvation of the Lord. I will work for my people, God promises. So where do we get this peace from? Be still. It's not found in, okay, breathing and doing the mindfulness minute that your, your Apple Watch is telling you to do it and meditation. No, no, no. Where do we get this stillness from? Be still and know that I am God. It is found in knowing God. Stillness and peace and hope for troubled hearts is found in knowing the character of God. God's character as the refuge. God's character as the strength. God's character as protector and defender and shield and covenant keeper. God's character as the God who is absolutely sovereign, who has decreed that the moment you are in right now would indeed happen. The God who has decreed that your faith would not fail even when assaulted by the forces of hell. That's your God. The God who is the God of Jacob, the undeserving deceiver. And the God who is the Lord of armies who moves heaven and earth to protect his people. Be still and know. You're going through a trial Run to God. When you're going through a trial, deepen your theology, your understanding of who your God is. Remember, we have this statement in verse 2 that the earth is being moved, that there's chaos going on, and then God coming along just saying, hey, be still to all of it. This is the same God who, by the way, said, peace be still to a churning sea. One commentator put it this way, the creator has mastered chaos. We go on in verse 10, we get this great promise of God. What is God, what, what is God ultimately doing in the world through the chaos, through the pain, through the heartache, through the turmoil, through the trials, through the attacks? He is exalting himself. He is giving an opportunity. He is setting a stage for himself to come on to, uh, come on to and to be the ultimate protagonist and to win the victory single-handedly. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The story of the Bible is about the self-glorification of the triune God through the salvation of his people. God is passionate for his own glory. He will exalt himself in spite of the ragings of the nations, in spite of man's sin. Ezekiel 36 talks about how Israel, when they were sent into exile, he says, yeah, you guys profaned my name. And what does God say? I will vindicate the name that you profane. God has got it. He is able to defend his own name. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. It's universal. It's eternal. And one day every knee will bow before him. There is nothing that is above him. There is no one who controls him and nothing that can influence him. He and he alone is God. He's the God who says, I am that I am. There is nothing prior to God and there is nothing that changes God. I am the Lord. I change not. And he will be exalted when all of history is done. Notice the extent of this, I will be exalted among the heathen. I think this means more than just the fact that God's going to come back one day and he's going to nuke all his enemies and rule. Be like, ha, I see in this the promise of the success of global missions. 
There are nations this morning who do not know the name of our Savior, who do not bow the knee to King Jesus. And God is saying, when history is done, I am going to call out a people from every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue, and I will succeed in what I have set out to do. Nothing will thwart that. Not the opposition of hostile governments, not the allure of false religions. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We need that reminder as we look at our nation. Like, oh no, it's, all these things are going bad, and we're, there's so much fear to know that God will accomplish his purposes. So verse 11 comes back, and we get that stanza repeated. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. So he already said it one time. Why does he need to say it again? God does not just repeat stuff to fill space. Okay, this is not like a term paper that is being written. And you're like, man, I got to get to 200 words. And let's see, let's just go ahead and repeat that. Maybe the teacher won't notice. No, that's not what's going on here. There is an economy of words in Scripture. If God repeats something, there is a very, very good reason. Yes, there's a musical reason. Yes, there's an aesthetic reason to say we've got this, these beautiful stanzas that are symmetrical. But I think the real reason why this is repeated is because we need the reminder, right? There's a reason why God gave us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is because we need the reminder over and over again of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Why is it that God over and over again says, fear not, I'm with you. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, for I'm with you. Because our hearts are prone to do what? To fear and to forget that God is with us. So God's coming back again, fearful people of God, fearful children, I'm with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am thy God. The fact that the God of armies is with us and the God of Jacob is our refuge are twin anchors that will stabilize our little little boat out on the stormy seas of life. Yes, we forget. And we need to sing this truth into our hearts. We need to read this truth into our hearts. We need to meditate this truth into our hearts. The truth of God's presence is a truth that never, ever grows old though is often forgotten. So what do we do with all of this? This is all great truth. You say, what, what do I do with this? For every single Christian, every single person who is here, we need to be reminded, and we need to remind ourselves consciously, moment in and moment out, that God is with us. Being still and knowing that God is God is a moment-by-moment choice to trust and rely on his sovereign providence. We forget and come back to it. Forget we come back to it. It is, a, it is a discipline. What do we do with this? Listen, the refuge is only good if you get into it. Right? The, the castle is only good if you get in, you close the gates, and you, you enjoy its safety. The river can only quench your thirst if you drink it. And the promises of the gospel, the promises of Jesus Christ, the promises of sins forgiven and a relationship with God are only good if you receive them by faith. And maybe you're here this morning saying, man, what you describe... I desperately want the, the, the fortresses that I have run to have been overrun by the, the, by the enemy. Sin is dominating my life. I, I want the, the kind of deliverance and the hope that you're talking about. It is found in a person. It is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have this hope because he threw open the doorway to the refuge by his death on the cross. He unleashed the stream to, to cleanse and to heal and to forgive and to satisfy when the spear ran into his side and the blood and water flowed out. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would plead with you this morning, run to Christ. He says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
just come to me. Like, put your trust in me. Put your reliance in me. Trust in him decisively for the forgiveness of your sins, for your eternal hope, for your eternal life. Put your reliance in him. If you're a Christian here today, the call in many ways is the same. Run back to Jesus over and over and over again. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Be still and know that I am God. Father, we bow before you. Seeking you.